Welcome to Camping is Cancelled. Lights out, campers. Oh man, the mountains call my number one. I'm just a life-size lottery ticket in the hand of the one. Our story begins in the sunny California fall of 1978, when a 19-year-old young man named John Rotten crossed paths with a young woman named Stephanie Lazarus at UCLA. Both of them were students there. John was studying mechanical engineering, and Stephanie was a political science major. They lived in the same dorm hall and met at a party, and apparently hit it off because they both really, they were both really into basketball and working out. John played for the campus's intramural men's basketball team, and Stephanie actually played for UCLA's junior varsity women's basketball team. They got along well as friends. They had a lot of mutual jock friends, so they hung out in the same circles, and they definitely had a mutual physical attraction. So, it wasn't long before, as many folks do in college, they became friends with benefits. In John's mind, he and Stephanie were just having fun and being carefree college students, you know, keeping things casual. And he liked hooking up with her, but he wasn't interested in locking down anything serious. And there's not really anything wrong with that if both people involved feel the same way and there's clear communication up front, but the same really cannot be said for Stephanie. Pretty much from the start of their whole situationship, she had intense romantic feelings for John even though, according to him, they never actually started having sex until he graduated in, I believe it was 1982. And their hookups in college were basically heavy makeout sessions. In his words, quote, I hate this word so much, necking and fooling around. What the fuck is necking? Is this 1945? Are they giraffes? Like just-, <laughs> just rubbing necks against each other. I think necking is making out. And fooling around is definitely like you're diddling in your first second. Parts. Yeah. Base. But that didn't really matter for Stephanie because she was head over heels in love with John, so much so that she would apparently sometimes steal his clothes when he was in the shower and would take naked photos of him when he slept over. No. no. The naked photos of him is that's red flag the stealing his clothes i mean whom among us hasn't stolen a hoodie or a t-shirt that i feel like that's kind of cute but that's kids play yeah but taking naked photos of someone without their consent is oh that's no it's just so creepy (laughs) also caitlin this was the 80s not oh, smartphone oh. era, so she would have had a turk. <laughs> so this bitch had to go to like CVS to have these pictures printed. Is that what did see? I don't even think CVS existed. Walmart? It would have been Walmart. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. And then you know she did like didn't know how to turn the flash off, so it was just like. Blinding naked John. Oh my god. Uh, no, don't say naked John. <laughs> <laughs> That's our father in law. 
you, scratch Jonathan. that scratch that but yeah um that's cringy and something else that I wanted to point out that because he said that he was like oh well we weren't actually having sex Mm -hmm. but all of the amazing sex therapists that I follow now on socials Mm -hmm. would beg to differ and the conversation now is that if you are having any sort of intimate sexual contact with someone that falls under the umbrella or it can because it totally depends on the person for you're having sex you're being very vulnerable you are exposing an intimate part of yourself to somebody else so for him he may not have thought it was that big of a deal Mm -hmm. but for her it was a really big deal and it can go both ways neither way like it can be the guy that feels that and the girl doesn't care it it doesn't matter but in this particular case she was super invested and he was like oh we're just having fun and they were definitely not on the same boat no they definitely were not and that's really unfortunate but I feel like that's pretty common when you're in college like somebody really likes someone and the other one's like oh this is great they're into me and I want to like dick around but nothing's gonna happen Mm. so yeah that was their whole situationship for pretty much all of college it sounded like please don't ever say necking to me ever again (laughs) I'll try my best (sighs) how about heavy petting Ew. Ew. I think that one's worse. Yeah, I don't like that. Mm. Bumping uglies? That's fine with me. Okay. Now, when John graduated in 1982, he and Stephanie's makeout situationship did not fizzle out. In fact, it did the opposite and escalated into full sexual intercourse. According to John, they had sex 20 to 30 times between 1981 and 1984. So, if we're doing the maths, it's like once a month. So, they were definitely each other's booty call. And it also wouldn't surprise me if they were hooking up way more often than that. Because you know he said that after the fact. He was like, oh, it's probably like 20 and 30 times between 1981 and 1984. There's no way you were keeping track. So, I would think it was more, probably several times a month. I could be wrong, but... Even if it was once a month, though, that's, I'm not speaking for myself, but that's more sex than some married couples have, you know. That is true, though. Like, that's regular meeting up and being intimate with someone, so, yeah. And that went on for years, so that's definitely a situationship. Hmm. And also, don't do that to someone if you're not on the same page. Like, we obviously don't know what their private conversations were like. But if you know that maybe he was just dumb and she was pretending like she was totally like, oh, things are casual, but hoping he would come around and take things to the next level. That's, in my mind, that had to have been what was going on. Or she just was telling him over and over like I love you and that he was like yeah we're gonna be together but not now like it could have been one of those things she's escalating a bit with the naked pics yeah 
Like, and we don't know if he knew if she was doing yeah. that at the time. Obviously. I'm sorry. As a guy, I wouldn't want my flaccid dick, <laughs> like, on your <laughs> B-roll. She had to have kept that hidden from him, surely. I, yeah. Again, I don't know, but I would just assume she was keeping that mm. to herself and the poor technician that had to develop those at Walmart. <laughs> Maybe it was. Ugh. No, I'm not going to say anything because it was not consensual. <laughs> right. That's the thing. Likely. If you're in a consensual situationship or like an unconventional relationship, like that's totally fine. But don't be a selfish asshole if you know that the person you're hooking up with is really into you and they want more and you're just like, I'm never going to give that to them, but I'm going to use them. That's... But as long as you're up front with it, that's that other person's problem for you're not right. getting the hint. You're right. As long as you're up front and they continue to stick around, because that's Because if it is right. true and they're having, over those three years, mm-hmm. sex once a month, basically. Yeah. Ma'am, get the hint. Yeah. That is really just somebody who is... in my mind truly in love with him which is kind of sad and hoping that it's going to be something else because yes she is the crazy one but at this point it takes two to tango yeah and he's not doing anything to make the situation better Mm -mm. for sure and when he graduated from ucla John got a job as a hard drive manufacturer for Micropolis, and Stephanie actually changed gears and decided to go through the police academy to become an officer with the LAPD. So as all of this is happening, they're finishing college, they're getting settled into careers, building their lives, they continue on with their situationship, and at this point they've known each other for around five years. When John meets a beautiful young woman named Sherry Rasmussen. And now we need to give Sherry the floor because you know we love a badass bitch up in here. And a badass bitch Sherry most definitely was. So John had just graduated from UCLA when he met Sherry, but she was already well established in her field of nursing because she'd started college when she was just 16 and was already working full time as a nurse by the time she was 20. And when she and John met, she was actually already the director of nursing at Glendale Adventist Medical Center. She was literally teaching other nurses how to nurse when most people were just halfway through school, if even that. So that's pretty amazing. John had some catching up to do because he hadn't even, I mean, he just got his job. So yeah, that's pretty awesome. Sherry's mother, Loretta, said about her in a later interview that Sherry loved taking care of people and was very passionate about making sure that things were done properly. So, Caitlin and I, as people who worked in the healthcare field, as CNAs, Sherry was our people. Sherry's dad also said about her that she was so passionate about her job as a nurse that she told him once, quote, 
I'm going to elevate the stature of nursing in the nation. And there was no doubt in anyone's mind that Sherry was absolutely going to do this. Sherry's parents and her friends absolutely adored her and were super proud of her. She was just one of those people that everyone wanted to be around and not to mention was truly genuinely gorgeous. So when John met her for the first time at a party in 1984, it was pretty much love at first sight. They apparently had a lot in common and really enjoyed being active and running together. They just vibed immediately. And it was one of those things where once they started dating, things got pretty serious right away. And they actually moved in together and got engaged the same year they met. Meanwhile, across town, while John and Sherry's relationship was taking off, unknown to Sherry was that another woman in John's life was still very much infatuated with him and was also unaware that he was seriously dating Sherry. Oh boy. Um... Here comes the messy. <laughs> Here comes the mess that not even the bounty quicker picker upper oh. can fix. <laughs> His college situationship buddy, Stephanie Lazarus. Because remember, we're in the 80s, the Philofax era, mm-hmm. not the social media era. So it's very possible for two people interested in the same person not to know the other even exists. Not only was Stephanie into John, she intentionally was not seeing anyone else so that she could devote her full attention to him. So she was really into him. Yeah. And that's scary. That really is. And he was not on the same page. He was dating other women and apparently not only dating other women, but he at one point in an interview said that he hadn't even talked to Stephanie for a few months and so he didn't even feel the need to tell her that he'd gotten engaged when he did so we're hearing that from him so we don't know how much of that is actually true. true you know but if that is true that does give you a little bit of an indication as to the intensity with which she was yeah, hanging on to him and that feeling was not mutual. And apparently Stephanie was so unaware of Sherry's existence to the point that she literally threw John a surprise birthday party for his 25th birthday while he was seriously dating Sherry and didn't find out until afterwards from a friend And it had to have been that one true friend that was, like, listening to Stephanie talk about John all the fucking time and then got fed up with how delusional she was and was like, Sherry, John is literally about to get married. He is very serious about someone else. Like, please stop. Yikes. Uh, Yeah, that's a true friend. Yes. And when she found out, she was absolutely devastated. She really believed that John loved her and that we guess she believed one day their relationship would eventually go to the next level. But to indicate where John's head was at, like I mentioned before, he hadn't even bothered telling Stephanie that he was engaged. 
Stephanie was so destroyed over hearing about his engagement to Sherry that she actually wrote a letter to John's mother in August of 1985, just a couple of months before John and Sherry got married. And this letter said, quote, I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision. Then a short while later in her own diary, she wrote, quote, I really don't feel like working. I found out that John is getting married. Yikes. I mean... Again, I know she's the crazy bitch, but right now I feel for Sherry because I know they were never officially boyfriend and girlfriend, but you don't just plan and throw a birthday party for someone who isn't at the very least an extremely close friend and he allowed this to go on. Yeah, that's the thing is he just let it go. And (sighs) maybe he really was just that oblivious I am trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, but... I definitely see it both ways because he has every right to be like, we are not attached. Yeah. I truly don't owe you anything. Yeah. Like, I don't owe you an explanation. If they got, mm-hmm. if they met and were dating and then engaged in yeah. less than a year, that's like a good that's, chunk of time that, yeah. like, bitch, get get with it. Realize like, what understand. is happening. Yeah. Like, if you guys aren't keeping constant communication... Mm-hmm read between the lines but on the yeah. same like other side of the f- coin i'm like nah he was a dick like yeah. she deserved to at least be told like hey right i'm with somebody else now or like, yeah especially if she was a booty call be like mm-hmm. hey don't need your booty this no isn't more. yeah like, this isn't going on and i know hashtag not all men so please don't come for us but this is something that when i was in college i had friends who did this to Mm -hmm. my friends guys that used friends who were girls of theirs that really liked them and would basically make them think that their relationship was more important to them than it actually was because they were just using them for oh I need somebody to do my laundry oh I need you know uh I don't have any money in my debit account to go to Chick-fil-A. Just all of this childish, narcissistic behavior and not all women, but yes, get a nanny. And it goes both ways. Like guys do this for girls too. If you really like somebody and they've got you on their hook and they're giving you those little breadcrumbs, you're gonna hang around. But to everyone out there, you deserve the whole baguette. Oh, thank you. I love bread. Enter the cringe of all cringe <laughs> incidents and the absolute worst way to end a relationship with someone. Air quotes. Massive air quotes. Oh, end. gosh. When Stephanie found out that John and Sherry were engaged, she called him in tears late at night and begged him to come over to her condo in Woodland Hills so they could talk. To which this fucker agreed but like good for him for like you know like but i don't know anywho if he had come over to give her the courtesy in person for apologizing for cutting off the relationship the way he had and stringing her along for all those years fine Mm -hmm. (laughs) but john does not do this because he is a dumb 
dumb. Dumb dumb. Dumb dick. Dee dee. <laughs> An incredible distraught Stephanie pleaded with John not to marry Sherry and oh, told him God. that she loved him more deeply than Sherry ever could. Oh my God. To this, John looked Stephanie in the eyes and said, Stephanie, I hear everything you're saying to me and it was wrong of me to lead you on these last few years when I knew that you loved me. But I never had any intention of taking our relationship to the next level, and you fully have the right to hate me for it. I don't expect you to forgive me, but I just can't force loving someone, and I know that I'm in love with Sherry, and we're getting married. I wish you all the best, Stephanie, but this is the last time we'll have contact with each other. I'm so sorry. Mm. Psych, bitches. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) He he stuck his stick in the honey pot. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, he sleeps with her. Oh, my God. In his words, quote, to give her closure. John. John. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. And then he went home to Sherry. Jesus. Sir. Fuck him. <laughs> Afterwards, Stephanie woke up her roommate that she shared the condo with, another LAPD officer named Mike Hargreaves. I really hope he was like her best gay. Like that he was, you know, like her best gay police officer buddy. Because that seems like somebody you'd want to have. Living with you? Like a best gay who's also a police officer. Best of both worlds coming together. Told him all about what had happened and asked if he'd do the (laughs) quote unquote buddy sit ups with her. Buddy sit-ups are when you're sitting and you kind of put your feet uh, interlocking and then you sit up at the same time. So those are buddy sit-ups. She asked him to do that with her and Mm -hmm. that it would make her feel better afterwards. Yeah. I guess that was her way of decompressing because she was apparently really into working out and was in really good shape and very strong and fit. So... That's the weirdest situation. I know. I've ever, it's so like, weird that I just had to put that in there because I read it in an article and it just, again, gives you a little window into just how she's an odd. She's duck. weird. Like, somebody just broke up with me. I'm going to sit up about it. In the months that followed, Mike noticed that Stephanie seemed pretty depressed over John and that even when she started trying to date again, she had what she called a John standard. Hmm. <laughs> And and he said she was very picky. Any man she went out with had to be tall, athletic, handsome, like John. I mean, it's an okay list. Yeah, and pictures of John, he was cute. I mean, he's got that kind of like goofy, handsome, not douchey look about him. I I think that he's cute. He's yeah, got Yeah, but now I know his personality. Yeah. So he's fugly. But just seeing a picture of him, you're like, okay, yeah, I can see bad. it. Yeah. Very standard, like not the mole that we were talking about last week. No. <laughs> a few months after that night, after the night that John had closure fucked Stephanie, mm-hmm. Mike moved out of Stephanie's condo. Probably because he was sick of hearing her talk about John. Was like, he probably got sick of doing buddy sit-ups with her. <laughs> At two in the morning like, when she was depressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now that John was confident that he'd closed the book on his situationship with Stephanie, 
he and Sherry happily carried on with their engagement and had a beautiful wedding with all their friends and family present. We would assume minus Stephanie on November 23rd, 1985. And according to everyone who knew them, John and Sherry loved being married to each other. And they were very much in their newlywed bliss era when 1986 started. And they were living in a condo on Balboa Boulevard in Van Nuys, with Sherry working as the, at the hospital as a director of nursing and John as a hard drive manufacturer. On February 24th, 1986, it was an early Monday morning, and Sherry was on the schedule to give a motivational speech to all the nurses at the hospital, and she was dreading it because, again, Caitlin and I know exactly what this is like. It was one of those things where the hospital requires you to be present, but literally no one wants to be there because... You know, you're either coming in early for a shift or you're staying late after a shift. You're grumpy and the last thing you want to do is sit there while your boss tells you how to do your job. Mm -hmm. And to me, the fact that she didn't want to do this shows us what kind of a nurse Sherry was, that she was a nurse's nurse. She was like, I know they know this is bullshit and they hate it and I don't want to make them listen to me talk. So she was still in her pajamas and was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to call in and say I hurt my back working out. <laughs> I like you, Sherry. Yes, we we like your, where your head's at, Sherry. And so she's thinking about calling in, but John was like, you know, I think you just need to suck it up, go in, get it over with, and everything will be fine. And Sherry was like, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. So that's kind of where things were at when they kissed goodbye and he left first for the day. And this was around 7.20 a.m. Over the course of the morning, John tried calling their condo a couple of times to check in and see if Sherry had ended up staying home. Once around 10 a.m. and a couple of times after that. But when she didn't answer, he figured she must have gone into work after all. He got a bit of a weird feeling when he called her secretary once at the hospital and she hadn't seen Sherry at all that day. But apparently on Mondays, Sherry wasn't usually in her office because she was out on the floor doing training, so even that wasn't a huge red flag. Hmm. John did what any of us probably would. He didn't jump to the worst case scenario and just figured she'd gone in and was busy at the hospital and he'd see her at home that evening. What he didn't know though was at, at around 9.45 a.m. that same morning, their next-door neighbor noticed that John and Sherry's garage door was open and Sherry's car was gone. Again, not a huge red flag. They just noted it was weird because they always closed the garage door when she left. When John got home that evening, he immediately saw the garage door was open and Sherry's car was missing and was horrified to see broken glass on the driveway. Now he was worried and rushed into the house. Nothing could have prepared John for the scene he encountered inside. His young wife, Sherry, was lying on the living room floor, still dressed in her pajamas. And just by glancing at her, John could see that she was dead, with her arms slightly raised up off of the floor and frozen, almost like she'd been holding them out in front of her in defense as she died. Her face had been beaten horrifically, 
and she had been shot point blank three times in the chest. A vase had been smashed over her head. Furniture had been pushed over. The apartment was an absolute wreck. Two of Sherry's fingernails were missing from her hand and later were found by the front door. And most horrifying of all, a deep bruise was visible on her left arm and was immediately apparent to detectives when they got there that it was from a bite mark. What the actual fuck? John was frantic and immediately called 911. LAPD detectives investigating the case quickly concluded that Sherry had been surprised and killed during a burglary gone wrong. And when they spoke with neighbors, a maid next door had actually heard screaming and fighting coming from the condo, and she thought the whole event had been a domestic dispute and did not call the police. Oh my god. Oh yeah. The LAPD's theory was that Sherry must have been upstairs when the burglars broke in and had been in the process of stealing electronic equipment when she happened upon them and they freaked out and attacked her, then left in a rush, which would have explained why all of the valuables in the apartment were left behind and why her BMW was missing, because they had taken it as a getaway. That BMW actually ended up being found a week later, but there was no evidence to be found inside. Weirdly enough, besides the BMW, the only thing that was missing from Sherry and John's home was their marriage license. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Their marriage license. The lead detective on Sherry's case, an officer named Lyle Mayer, did consider briefly other possibilities, like John, because as we know, it almost always is the husband. So they zoned in on him almost immediately, but almost as quickly were able to rule him out because his work alibi was rock solid. And it was apparent to all of the detectives that he was just absolutely destroyed. And I guess in the articles I read, Apparently to these detectives, John was acting in a manner that was so genuinely mm -hmm. distraught and destroyed that they obviously confirmed his alibi, but they were confident immediately just by talking to him that he didn't have anything to do with it. And, you know, we always hear that, oh, we weren't really sure of his reaction. Like, it mm -hmm. seemed kind of weird, but I feel like if these long-time detectives are saying, no, we really don't think he had anything to do with it, and plus his alibi checks yeah. out, that's good for me. And after he was cleared as a suspect, John actually quit his job and moved away from Los Angeles a very short time after. Can't say I blame him. Nope. Yeah. The same year that Cherry was killed in 1986, the LAPD were overwhelmed with homicides in LA, and Cherry's death was just one of over 800 homicides that had been reported just that year. And as far as the evidence, there really wasn't that much to go off of. Like, they had the stuff smashed up in the apartment, they had her injuries, they had a bullet from the three gunshots in her chest, but 
nothing was matching to anything. There was nothing that they could, I guess, nothing they collected that led them in any specific direction. And she was given a um, a sexual assault kit. Mm-hmm. All of that was done and it came back clean. So they just kind of used all of these things to be like, yep, that checks off that that was a burglary, checks off that that was a burglary. And they didn't really dig into any other options. Um, Even after they spoke with neighbors, they they just kind of left it at that. They didn't even talk with Sherry's close friends and basically didn't even talk to her parents just very briefly. But when they did... Uh, There was somebody that Nels and Loretta Rasmussen were very concerned about. And this name they brought up over and over to police, begging them to look into into detail. And this was a person who their own daughter, Sherry, had called them very upset about many times over the last few months. Any guesses who that person might be? Stephanie. Stephanie, Stephanie. According to Sherry's parents, Sherry told them that Stephanie, quote, had been to the house at least three times. And one time Stephanie showed up with a pair of skis saying she needed to have John wax them. (laughs) What the fuck? Apparently Sherry left and went into another room while Stephanie and John talked. It was right after this weird as fuck visit, she found out about John's breakup sleeping with Mm. Stephanie. But he assured her that it was absolutely over between them and that he hadn't spoken with her since and would continue not to speak with her. Mm, Before or after you wax her skis. Yeah. I can totally picture that conversation. Later, when Stephanie returned to pick up the skis, Sherry told her that she didn't want her to come back to the house ever again. Hmm. Yeah. Understandable. Yes, ma'am. Suddenly, Sherry was mysteriously bumping into Stephanie whenever she'd go shopping or to the gym. Oh, my God. And in the most disturbing incident for Sherry, one day, Stephanie actually showed up at the Glendale Adventist Hospital and came to Stephanie's office dressed in <laughs> what we would call booty shorts mm, and yeah. a slutty top. Basically cornered Sherry and told her, quote, if I can't have John, then no one can. What did police do about all this? They made a note. And 20 years went by. Oh my god. What a fucking psycho. Yeah. Like. That is astounding to me that the marriage license was missing. And that her parents told all of this very specific information to the LAPD. And they did not look into it further. And... We know why they didn't look into it further, because Stephanie Lazarus was a member of the LAPD. So it is very much a thing that you don't zone in on your own. Mm -hmm. And at the time, she was a rookie cop. She hadn't been one for very long, but she was still one of their own. So they were quick to just be like, yeah, well, it was probably a robbery. And there's just some drama, but she didn't kill anybody. Like, just a gang of robbers who, you know, just collect marriage license. (laughs) Right. Who break in 
horrendously violently attack someone who Sherry was not a dumbass. Like, you know that if that had happened, I'm sorry. Yeah, Sherry, yeah Sherry. Sherry was not a dumbass. Like, she would not have fought that hard to save a VCR. Exactly. And is very evident that there was an epic fight because mm-hmm. of all of the things that were smashed in the apartment. I mean, she had a fucking vase broken over her head. Her fingernails were ripped off. Yeah, I just, and I know it wasn't yet in the days of DNA like yeah being hard Super evidence prominent. or like you know yeah but her fingernails are off yeah there is glass obviously there yeah. has to be dna of another person that just reminded me when i worked at the mall people would get in fights in the store that i worked in and i have a vivid memory that lives rent free of my brain of three girls getting in an altercation and just wrecking I mean decimating the place like slamming each other onto tables flipping over clothing fixtures they were ripping out hunks of each other's hair there was a cell phone that got smashed into like 10 pieces on the ground and they just ran out and of course the mall security didn't do shit like they showed up 30 minutes later and wrote some stuff in their notebook and left but we were left to clean up the mess and there were literally bloody fingernails on the floor yeah and also not to be gross I don't know if this is what happened in this case but the fingernails got torn out because we were watching the fight and Mm -hmm. this one girl she had her hands buried in the other's hair and that was what ripped them off ew isn't that horrifying but again they're i'm bringing it up because their struggle in the store was incredibly violent and all over the place and the amount of force that it takes to actually like rip a fingernail off and flip over furniture and break something over somebody's head whatever happened was horrendous and doesn't make any sense that it was just a burglary that was a whoopsie exactly that doesn't track and then you again have her parents being like no please look into this person she was afraid of her and she was being stalked yes yes exactly that is the word she was absolutely stalking let it be known (laughs) just a little (laughs) just a sidebar uh that is the job that Jen was advised by those same security guards to oh, yeah. carry a spork in her oh, purse my gosh. because weapons were not allowed no. to protect herself. Yep. Yep. After that, I was really afraid for my personal safety and I asked our HR what I could do to keep myself safe because we couldn't rely on police or security or anyone. And they said, well, you really can't have any sort of personal protection that would be considered a weapon so no pepper spray no pocket knife no nothing gun like no i was just like like, conceal and carry even right right Uh, and they were like no you can't you cannot have pepper spray in this building but you can put a spork or maybe a fork in your purse and just hold it in your fist when you 
walk out to the mm-hmm. parking lot in the dead of night and i was like eh. and we won't name the mall or anything no. but let's just say <laughs> it was a nice mall and not the nicest areas yeah with not the nicest crowd yeah and lots of cops in the area yeah it was a very high violent crime area and i was definitely unsafe because a lot of people were basically if you were a woman by yourself you were unsafe so Mm -hmm. yeah i didn't stay at that job for much longer after that nope you went into the field of the nursing home i did (laughs) yeah and then i weirdly got physically assaulted even more yeah (laughs) yeah how the (laughs) turntables anywho back to this messy 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 situation the supposed burglars to whom detectives were attributing sherry's murder remained at large despite a follow-up newspaper story eight months later and a reward offered by the Rasmussen family. The LAPD were very preoccupied with all of the violence from gang wars and drugs that were ravaging the city at the time, and they really did not devote any attention to the case. The Rasmussens also said that The detectives at the Van Nuys office were very unhelpful whenever they called for updates on Sherry's case, and they would either just hang up the phone or put them on hold until they would have to hang up. A full year after Sherry's murder, the very frustrated family reiterated their offer at a press conference and called for more action. Still, nothing happened. Sherry's dad, Nels, even personally wrote to the chief of the LAPD about the possibility and their belief that Stephanie Lazarus might have been involved in Sherry's death. But detectives told him that he watched too much television. Nels, because he is the dad of dads, continued to publicize the reward that the family offered for any information leading to the catching of Sherry's murderer, and later actually worked with a TV series inspired by the case. It's a little fun fact about that. But yeah, that was very much just them wanting it to be done and and that be that. But this is someone's child. Yeah. So fuck you. Yep. Nels, um, in particular, was unconvinced that Sherry, who was a whopping six tall damn six feet tall oh my goodness had a large frame and i mean in good physical shape oh yeah had been the victim of a botched burglary yeah because she literally was working out the day before it happened and pictures of her she was in really good shape like very strong she absolutely could have kicked somebody's ass so I mean, he naturally thought it would have been a struggle for anyone to subdue her in close quarters. And Mayer had told him that at one point that the events may have lasted an hour and a half. Holy whoa, shit. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, and if we didn't specify before, I think I did, but Lyle Mayer is who we're talking about, oh. who is the lead detective on the case. So when we who say Mayer, yes. Fuck yep. you. Um... 
Yeah, so an hour and a half isn't what you see a burglar taking the time of yeah assaulting i would say that even 20 minutes was a long time but an hour and a half is a long time somebody who goes in to burglarize a house does like if their intent is not to you know Mm -hmm. entangle themselves up with other people yeah why would they then spend time Mm -hmm. like they could have just subdued her yeah they could have left yeah but no they killed her and took her marriage license yeah how does that make sense yep further whoever shot his daughter had fired directly into her chest at close range and had taken the trouble to muffle the shot with the quilt suggesting that the killing was deliberate and not the accidental byproduct of a struggle Mm, yeah that makes a lot of sense the evidence is just the math ain't mathin (laughs) The math ain't mathin'. And good old Lyle eventually retired, and there was a new detective aside to the case, um, who told Nels that he was unable to follow up on the notes that Lyle made and did not think that any new leads would emerge. So basically, the family was given hope that things were going to change when a new detective was assigned, but they were basically like, yep, can't really do anything. And... At this point, let's see, 1986, seven years have gone by. And in 1993, Lyle Mayer eventually retired, like we said, and the new detective was assigned to the case, who then told Sherry's family that they could not do anything. They couldn't follow up on the notes. They did not think that any leads would emerge, despite Nels continuing to ask if there was any possibility that Stephanie Lazarus could have been linked to Sherry's death. He offered to pay for DNA testing. They said they couldn't do it because they had to have a suspect to proceed. And what Nels didn't know in all of this time that he was begging for them to look further into Stephanie was that Stephanie actually briefly reunited with John in 1989. And after this conversation, Lyle Mayer had notes that John called him and asked himself if he was absolutely sure that there was no evidence linking Stephanie to Sherry's death. So even John is now asking this detective, are you sure she came to talk to me and it was weird? And they were just like, no, doesn't make sense. That, that is just absolutely <laughs> just enraging. Me off. It really does. And in the meantime, as these years are going by, Stephanie continued working with the LAPD. She actually went on to start her own private investigation firm, Unique Investigations. That's dumb, Stephanie. Nobody cares. In 1987, she won a gold medal at the World Police and Fire Games in San Diego. That would be cool if I cared, but you're a piece of shit, so I don't. In Actually, we don't know if she's a piece of shit yet, but I think everybody at this point can see where this uh, is going. You didn't already pick up what we're putting down. <laughs> then in 1993, after 
doing stints at the department's drug abuse resistance education and internal affairs divisions, she actually got up the ladder to a detective. Three years later, she got married and adopted a daughter, moved back to Simi Valley, and became an instructor in the police academy. So she went on her merry way to live a very fulfilled life. I almost said academically, professionally, and personally. John eventually would remarry as well, and he did not pressure the police, apparently as hard as his uh, father-in-law had. So, yeah, he also just kind of remarried and moved on. Which you can't blame him for. No, you can't. He, I'm sure he just wanted it to be done and behind him. Mm-hmm. In the late 90s, after DNA testing had become more prominent, the LAPD formed a new unit that looked through the forensic evidence collected from the department's cold case files to determine whether any had the potential for new leads through this DNA testing. Among the evidence seen as likely to do so was that collected from the Rasmussen residence. However, it was not until 2004 that another criminalist, Jennifer Francis, was able to analyze it. 2004. So that's... Okay, it said the late 1990s. So... 17? Am I doing the math right? That's still just years. I mean, years are just going by and her poor family is just sitting there waiting. Ugh. But at least someone's doing something, you know? Things are slowly starting to move. So, some of that evidence from Sherry's case included that which might have contained the suspect's DNA. There it is. There it is. Mm. There it is. Was missing. There it isn't. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) There it is. There it isn't. Having been collected in 1993 by another detective. Hmm. Jennifer Francis did not find any matches in the combined DNA index system database, but she did find that the saliva and the evidence taken from Sherry had, and by evidence we mean the bite, the bite, the bite on her arm, the saliva had come from a female, which undermined the initial male burglary theory. Several years later, Francis claimed that, unusually, she had access to not just the sample, but the entire case file of Sherry's, which had been given to her to help her decide which other samples to analyze. Upon discovering that this biter and, most likely, perpetrator was female, She reviewed the entire case file and came across a report of a third-party female who had allegedly harassed the victim at her job and residence before the murder. Let the women do the fucking work. There's another podcast I love called True Crime Obsessed, and that is one of their catchphrases. They say, let the women do the work. I swear. And it, oh my God. I swear. Jennifer Francis. Jennifer asked the detective supervising her if this woman had been investigated, to which 
he supposedly responded with, oh, you mean the LAPD detective? Bitch, he knew. He knew. Motherfucker. He elaborated that that woman, (laughs) who happened (gasps) to be a former girlfriend of the victim's husband, was in fact a current LAPD detective, but she's just not part of this. Oh my, and he actually quoted that. He said she's not a part of this. Wow. He insisted that the case was simply a burglary as the department had long concluded. No other detective would pursue the case, and the evidence went back into the files. Oh my god. Man. Jennifer Francis had to be just going crazy. Because you know she knew. She was like, I know. She knows. She knew. She knows. Now we're going to fast forward a whole nother decade. Probably more than a decade. Yes, more than a decade. Because this was 1994 that all this was happening. And by 2009, crime in Los Angeles had declined enough from its earlier levels that detectives began looking into cold cases again to increase their clearance rates. And in Van Nuys, Jim Natal and Pete Barba reviewed the Sherry Rasmussen file and found it interesting enough to be worth pursuing. Because the DNA test pointed to a female suspect, they decided the burglary theory was invalid and that they would have to start from the beginning. Wow. Glad it took however many years and however many things changing hands i natal and barba looked at the case as a murder a finally with the burglary staged to throw the police off the trail many aspects of the crime were improbable for a break-in especially one committed in daylight sherry's jewelry box an inviting target for a burglar was in plain view atop her dresser and as you would suspect, yep. it was untouched. Mm-mm. The condo was in the middle of a gated complex surrounded by other units from which burglars could have expected to be easily observed. Mm. The front door had an alarm warning and had not been forced open, as it might have been if the burglars had not expected anyone to be home. That is really interesting because if the door wasn't forced open then that would be like it was someone she knew at the door Mm -hmm. and just opened it to speak to them. Inside, a key aspect of the crime scene was also inconsistent with the burglary theory. At the top of the stairs was a stack of stereo equipment atop a VCR. If, as the evidence suggested, the struggle between Sherry and her attacker had begun upstairs and then continued downstairs, that stack would likely have been knocked downstairs and scattered all over the place. It made more sense to assume that it had been stacked afterwards, when an actual burglar would have fled the scene immediately after the shooting. My God, it's they like really did really nothing. somebody really applied for a job that they wanted to do, and they followed through with that job. I mean, truly. Uh, the forensics reinforced this theory. On a record player atop the stack was a thumb-shaped blood stain. 
It had no print, suggesting whoever left it was wearing gloves to avoid leaving identification. Doesn't sound like a burglar to me. Yeah. But the blood was Sherry's, suggesting the equipment had been stacked after the struggle and shooting. It had been left behind, and the detectives realized to make the crime look like something other than what it really was. Hmm. From the four bound volumes of the case file they developed. Holy shit. <laughs> God. They developed a list of five female suspects. When detectives spoke with John regarding the third-party person mentioned in the original case file, they were shocked to learn that she was a police officer. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> By then, Stephanie had been promoted to a higher-level detective and was working art theft cases as part of the Commercial Crimes Defense Division. As one of the two detectives in the nation's only full-time unit devoted to that specialty, Stephanie had actually gained some local media attention when she and her partner had recovered a stolen statue. To better understand the field, she told a local newspaper that she had begun learning to paint. Off the job, Stephanie had been active in the LA Women Police Officers Association, organizing childcare for families of officers. She also made chocolate-covered cherries and homemade soap for her neighbors for Christmas. We know how we feel about homemade mm -hmm. soap. Listen to the Leonardo Cinciulli three-pata if you haven't. <laughs> Since Stephanie was still with the department, the detectives Natal and Barba realized that they would have to proceed carefully. And still, they ranked Stephanie as the least promising of the five suspects, since they'd read in the files that she and John had ended any relationship they had the summer before Sherry's death. Hmm. Natal and Barba's investigations soon eliminated all but one of the other women. The other, a former co-worker of Sherry's who had had some disputes with her, was eliminated by a covertly collected DNA sample. Oh my god, I wonder if that bitch had any idea <laughs> how <laughs> close she came. <laughs> you did. She was like, she. I was just pissed because she took my work pen, <laughs> my favorite pen. Just imagine you just get arrested one day for some bitch you didn't like at work <laughs> that died 25 <laughs> years ago. Oh my god. Oh gosh. Like, but that did not happen. It didn't. Thank you, DNA. <laughs> so, with only Stephanie left, they kept their investigation a closely guarded secret. Not only did her husband also work in the commercial crimes division as a detective, she may have had other friends who could have tipped her off. If she were the killer, she could have had, she could have improved her defense. If she was not then they could have unintentionally smeared a fellow officer who had an unblemished service record over the course of a career with no disciplinary investigations or civilian complaints. They referred her to only as number five. <laughs> <laughs> number five. Mambo number five. <laughs> Worked on the case after hours or behind closed doors and developed cover stories to explain why they wanted to look at personal records of one particular officer from 20 years ago. The detectives began looking into other aspects of Stephanie's life during the mid-1980s. 
Another detective recalled that at the time, most LAPD officers had preferred a 38 as their backup or off-duty carry gun. In fact, they were required to purchase only weapons compatible with the federal plus P ammunition that had been used in the murder. State and departmental records showed that Stephanie had indeed owned a Smith & Wesson Model 4938 at that time and, oh, reported it stolen to Santa Monica police, but not to her own department's armorer, 13 days after the fucking murder. Since the location where Stephanie had reported the gun stolen was near a popular pier, they assumed she had thrown the gun into the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> well, that's gone forever. <laughs> Without the weapon, DNA would be the only definite way to connect Sherry's death to Stephanie. Natal and Barba theorized from their own experience about how LAPD officer would commit a murder. It would be better to do it on a day off, and departmental records showed that Stephanie had indeed been off the day of Sherry's murder. Officers would have known better than to use their duty gun, since it would have to be disposed after the crime, and the penalties for losing a duty gun or failing to prevent itself, its theft, were severe. Ooh. Instead, it made sense to use a backup gun, like Stephanie's, a thirty-eight. Mm, yes. Last, a working patrol officer would know how to do just enough to make the crime scene look like an interrupted burglary to satisfy an overworked detective. Which she certainly did. She still did a and shit job. And apparently she didn't have to do that much at all. She just had to put a fucking VCR at the top of the stairs. Like... Jeez. Nels. Nels. I love Nels so much. Nell Sherry's dad told Natal about Stephanie's continued contact with his daughter, which had not been in the files, despite him mentioning it over and over during the very first interviews, way back when everything was first being investigated. So they realized that Stephanie was now their prime suspect. And the detectives informed their superiors and arranged to discreetly collect a voluntarily discarded DNA sample from her, knowing they could do so without having to get a warrant, which would have let Stephanie know that she was definitely under investigation. While off-duty running errands, Stephanie threw away a cup, and the police retrieved it. A sample was taken from it, which matched the DNA immediately from the bite mark on Sherry Rasmussen's arm. Got her. Oh my God. I, the moment that that came back a match, they had to feel so like, what the fuck? Because this is somebody that is like a fixture in the LAPD that has all of this shining a, okay, maybe I just, I just the live table. for this type of drama Man. but i oh that would be a high like no other and imagine how if they were like sneaking around like quietly investigating her and they probably were so fucking scared that 
they were going to smear her name and it was all going to come crashing down and she'd be innocent and they'd lose their job. But man, the satisfaction of being right. That, who was it? It was a DNA analyst, Jennifer Francis. Mm -hmm. She better have been their first call and been like, bitch, you were right. You were right all those years ago. Ow at your knees, bitches. Yes. Oh. Fuck you, Lyle. (laughs) Gosh. Caitlin, Lyle retired a really long time ago, so he's probably no longer living. Okay. I don't care. (laughs) Oh, fuck you. You could have done better. Rest in peace, but you could have done better. Yes. Yes. You are absolutely correct. Stephanie's case was transferred to the Robbery Homicide Division, which handled many of the department's high-profile cases, including the Art Theft Bureau, where Stephanie herself worked. Her arrest was planned carefully. On the day of the arrest, in June 2009, dozens of officers arose before dawn. Oh my gosh. (laughs) After being briefed on a search warrant, they were told would be executed outside the city, but with few details beyond that. They went to wait near Stephanie's home in Simi Valley by the Metrolink station, where Stephanie commuted to the city. A short time later, detectives from the RHD, who had been selected for their lack of personal connection to Stephanie, called her from the lockup at Parker Center, the department's headquarters. Bratton had ordered that location to be used since Stephanie would have to surrender her gun and equipment belt in order to enter it which limited the possibility that she might resist violently when she was arrested, which they planned to be immediately following the interview, or once she realized that she was the prime suspect. The detectives, Greg Stearns and Dan Jaramillo, told her they had someone in custody who wanted to talk to her about an art theft. After Stephanie had checked her gun and entered the interrogation room, they explained that this was really about some loose ends that they were trying to tie up regarding Sherry's case, since her name had come up in the investigation. They claimed they wanted a private setting because, while John was an old boyfriend, Stephanie had long been married to someone else and they did not want her private life to become the subject of an office gossip. Oh, how kind so of them. nice of them. Yeah. Bitch, you are about to be the juiciest <laughs> gossip. <laughs> Stearns and Jarmello knew they would have to tread carefully since Stephanie herself was well aware of police interview techniques and her rights to silence and legal counsel which she could invoke at any time. Oh my gosh. They rambled and digressed from the subject at times, sometimes talking about unrelated police business, but always kept circling back around to Sherry. Stephanie claimed to not remember much due to the years since the case had happened, but she gradually began revealing that she did know more than she was letting on including some oblique acknowledgments of her visits to the Ruttons condo and a specific encounter at Sherry's office where she was wearing some booty shorts (laughs) until she caught on to what they were doing and accused the detectives of considering her a suspect. The detectives mentioned it was possible that they actually had DNA evidence from the crime scene and 
At this point, they requested DNA samples from Stephanie. Stephanie declined and immediately left the room. But right at the door, she was stopped, arrested, and charged with the murder of Sherry Rutten. Dumb bitch, they already got your DNA. <laughs> yeah. Who's the detective now? Not us, but we like to think <laughs> <Not> us. <laughs> oh, gosh. Once she had been arrested, the police officer teams in Simi Valley began searching Stephanie's home and car. In her house, they found her journal from the mid-1980s, with numerous mentions of her love for John and her despair over his engagement to Sherry, and no mentions of her gun having been stolen. Oh, interesting. Hmm. Her computer showed that she had searched the internet for John's name on several occasions during the late 90s. <laughs> Holy shit. It's like the literal first thing she does when she gets the internet or like gets a computer just so she <laughs> can search John. <laughs> and then nothing ever again. Gosh. As the investigating detectives had been, many other LAPD officers were stunned at the idea that Stephanie might have murdered someone. Fellow detectives recalled her as vivacious and supportive, although some also recalled that her behavior when angry had led some to <laughs> refer to her as Y'all, oh, apparently they called this bitch Spazarus behind her back. Oh, the Spazarus is coming. Spazarus. Oh my gosh. A case she had been developing. <laughs> All you'll have to do is Google image her and you... <laughs> That you will understand why this is so Guys, funny. It's in the eyes. It's <laughs> it in, is the in the eyes. eyes. Oh, oh my, my gosh. God. <clears throat> All right. <laughs> Moving on. A case she had been developing from her art theft work with elder abuse and real estate fraud aspects had to be dropped since it was highly unlikely that it could be prosecuted successfully if the lead investigator herself were facing a murder charge. Wow, well, that art thief had yeah, their lucky day. Wow. After her arrest, Stephanie was allowed to retire early from the LAPD and she was held for about six months in the L.A. County Jail until her bail was set for $10 million. The case attracted considerable media attention. Many of its elements, that messy threesome we were talking about. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, a nasty tr love triangle with a woman scorned. A cold case unsolved for over 20 years. And the accused killer herself turning out to be a police officer, were similar to the plots of a popular televised police drama and reality show, such as Snapped, Scorned, Love Kills, and Deadly Women. Sounds about right. The Atlantic ran a feature story about the case before the trial, and Vanity Fair ran one by Mark Bowden afterwards. The trial began in early 2012. In Los Angeles County Superior Court, 
prosecutors argued that Stephanie's motive for the murder of Sherry was jealousy over Sherry's relationship with John. In his opening argument, prosecutor Shannon Presby summed up the case as, quote, a bite, a bullet, a gun barrel, and a broken heart. That's the evidence that will prove to you that defendant Stephanie Lazarus, aka Spazarus, murdered Sherry Rasmussen. A highlight of the case was John Rutten's testimony. Several times, he became incredibly emotional and wept on the stand, particularly when recalling his and Sherry's relationship. He allowed that having sex with Stephanie while he was engaged to his future wife was, in fact, a mistake. John, no shit. You think? Gosh. That, oh, God. This is why we think with the head on our shoulders, not the head between our legs. That is correct. Thank you, Caitlin. You're welcome. I on a t-shirt. I do feel really bad for John. I mean, oh, I mean, but, yeah. Ugh. I mean, he was a dumb dumb, but he was a complete dumbass. Yeah. But how many times does this exact type of situation happen and it's messy, but it ends up being fine and you just, like, yeah, have it be it an anxiety. Yeah, it doesn't end in your right. wife's murder. Right. It's, like, this is all Stephanie. This is yeah, all Stephanie. It absolutely is. Yeah, he mm. bears no responsibility in the murder, I don't believe, in just the murder like- of his wife. And without going into the details that would take forever and ever of this case basically the defense of stephanie argued that the evidence had been botched at the crime scene to the point where they couldn't actually know beyond a reasonable doubt if it really belonged to stephanie like if the gun bullet really came from her gun if the DNA really came from her trying to say that it wasn't stored properly, yada, yada, yada. But ultimately, none of those things really held up and they were able to be, I don't even know what the right word is. None of those things held up and they were able to be looked past. Yeah. Both prosecution and defense reiterated their themes in the closing arguments. After showing the jury of eight women and four men photographs of a beaten, bloodied Sherry, oh, gosh. prosecutor Paul Nunez told them, quote, it wasn't a fair fight. This was prey caught in a cage with a predator, oh. unquote. Overland dismissed the entire case as circumstantial, quote unquote, fluff and fill, save for the compromised bite mark DNA sample. He moved for a mistrial after Nunez reminded the jurors that no alibi had been provided for the time of the murder, since defendants' refusal to testify cannot be held against them, but Perry denied it, saying he did not take that as directly suggesting Stephanie herself had refused to testify and thus her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination had not been violated. In March, after several days of deliberations, Stephanie Lazarus, then 52 years old, was convicted of the first-degree murder of Sherry Rutten. And later that month, she was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. 
and she is currently serving her sentence at the California Institution for Women in Corona. After credit for time served before the trial, she will be eligible for parole in December 2034. And and a last little note, because it's happening this year, Stephanie is scheduled for an initial suitability parole hearing on November 16th, 2023. Nope. Nope. You got 20 years to live your life. Yep. Nope. Yeah, you got to have a full ass life and you ripped an innocent beautiful kind caring persons away you do not get to enjoy your life anymore nope sign seal delivered baby rotten hell oh my god and i feel like we forgot to mention somebody who is another victim in all of this and that is the daughter that stephanie adopted with the man that she ended up marrying i mean that's god and that's why i'm like fuck her even more because she brought more innocent people into her shit show yep oh man it also makes you wonder like did he know do you think that the man that uh, she married knew that she did it my speculation is yes Uh uh-huh that he knew Hmm. the bitch had crazy eyes (laughs) she had a nickname nickname behind her back he worked with her he had to have known her nickname he and I don't believe that her level of obsession with John and those feelings for him never went away. So at some point in their years together, there had to be some sort of comment. There had to be a slip up some... while he was pounding from her behind. Oh, and... God. I also read that during the trial that not once Stephanie never even looked in John's direction nor did she look when they put up photos of Sherry and John together at their wedding. Nope. It was just like, nope. Uh, she just fully disassociated the entire time. She should have done that after John ended things with her. Yep. And moved on with her life. Man. Gosh. I am so happy that it ended up getting solved. Nels, Nels got. Yes, and that closure was able to be had, but man, that took way, way longer than it should have. And Jennifer Francis, the person who in the very beginning figured out the DNA Mm -hmm. from Sherry's arm belonged to a female, that really, to me, is the turning point where Mm -hmm. it really could have just been gone forever. Mm -hmm. And Apparently, that whole incident, I was listening to a podcast on this, that was kind of like they were doing a last look through of evidence from old like cold cases Mm -hmm. before they were going to just be like, well, these are done and we're going to dump everything and basically get rid of it all. So if she had not done what she did, then... Stephanie Lazarus would have gotten away with it but she thought you know what I'm just gonna run this saliva sample one more time just for shits and giggles and And it worked oh man yep it sure did and while it's not the conventional happy ending no um it's still somebody is held responsible yep and I mean, we'll take that small win. (laughs) Yes. 
Yep. Small wins. And yeah. Stay safe, everybody. Make, what did we learn from this case? Do not stick and do not let others stick. <laughs> Things inside of you. Inside of you. Without, without fully coming to terms what it means to the both of you. <laughs> Amen, sister suffragette. Uh, just think it through, guys. Sex is cool, but I'm telling you. If they have some crazy eyes, oh God. run. Oh, yeah. But while you're following that mm-hmm. advice, follow this advice and go ahead and follow us over on Instagram at Camping is Canceled. Uh, go ahead and email us your case suggestions. Mm-hmm. And as we touched on last week, any personal stories, whether they be paranormal, mm-hmm. just weird, cryptid, anything, you know, that could go with our future friday night frights episodes yes we are working hard on putting that together for you guys please send that to us and you can send that to campingiscanceled at gmail.com and we're also on tiktok (gasps) yeah at campingiscanceled so i think that's all of the things we're not on threads yet but what the fuck is threads oh threads is the new messaging thing that's like a part of instagram now everybody's got those little numbers underneath their instagram account and that's like their threads number what i'm gonna live under my rock i'm old we'll be on threads someday that's it's like the new twitter it's like everyone's dumping twitter for threads oh i never did twitter but threads and instagram are like connected like instagram i'm sorry threads is a part of instagram and vice versa yeah so it's just everybody. It's just another social media uh, forum. I don't like it. Anywho, it really you is. can find us there one day. <laughs> Until then, bye. Lights out, campers. Bye.